You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. sapiens is a mammal that, uncharacteristically, travels on two legs, leaving the forelimbs free for other tasks. Although the usual gait is a walk, a rare feature in the animal's neck permits it to run at considerable speed for astounding distances. The fur, black in most individuals, is largely restricted to the head and the junctions of the limbs and trunk, although a fine pelage does cover the rest of the body. The human skin is usually some shade of brown, but can be pink in the least sunny parts of its range. Eye color is also brown in most humans, but among individuals with reduced skin pigmentation, eyes may be hazel, green, or blue. The human's dentition is typical of an omnivore, excepting its strangely diminutive canine teeth. In fact, this animal is surprisingly ill-equipped for physical aggression or defense. Due to prolonged isolation of breeding populations, humans have evolved numerous morphs, or races, Pygmies are the smallest of these, standing less than 5 feet tall. Northern Europeans are the largest, with the Dutch male averaging 5 feet 10 inches. Sex differences are pronounced. The female carries two permanently enlarged mammary glands high on the chest. As in most mammals, the male has nipples but cannot nurse young. The sexes also differ in height, fat storage, and fur distribution. Although the human bears a resemblance to the other great apes, a careful observer will note that the human demonstrates a stronger inclination to tamper with its skin and fur, and that its excursions into trees are normally clumsy and often injurious. Hannah Holmes is the author of Suburban Safari and The Secret Life of Dust. Her new book is The Well-Dressed Ape, A Natural History of Myself. Thank you for joining me, Hannah. It's so great to be here. Hannah, This book is based around a a really interesting perceptual shift about an eighth of an inch to the left or right. I look at people and I see a bunch of people. You look at people in this book and you see animals. Yeah, you know, we just accepted ourselves from the whole other bunch of animals in the world for some reason. And it seemed to me both necessary and really amusing to inject the human back into the context of all the other creatures. I mean, we really are honest-to-God animals. And it was a really amusing and enlightening exercise to consider myself and everybody else uh, the way I would a squirrel. (laughs) When you started writing this book, you have a great prose style. Did you discover that prose style right off the bat? And just, it seems like it's you got on this wave and surfed through the whole book. Oh, thank you. Um, The truth is that I came um, to science writing through the Discovery Channel online back when the internet was a dismal little, oh, you know, experiment and nobody had a laptop and to read anything online you had to inch forward and stick your chin out and squint. And I was supposed to write compelling science stories that people would come back for 30 days in a row. And I thought the only way to survive this was to make it incredibly smooth and fun and interesting. And so that's kind of where I taught myself how to do science writing. It's highly apparent because this book is really, it's gripping and funny. It's like an amusing, uh, it's like a week of amusing nights in a bar with somebody who really knows her stuff. You know, it was a blast to unleash 
the um, sort of useless knowledge I've been accumulating for many years, and to have so much information at my fingertips about animals and humans, and just to be able to finally put it all together in one big silly package. Now, um, this brings to me a question about the writing in this book, because it, it's clear you were writing this book while you were working on other stuff. You mentioned about some other projects. How long has this book been in the making? I don't even know exactly. It probably took six months to research the general concept of doing this natural history field guide sort of thing. And after that, uh, I guess probably 18 months or more to to create the finished product. So a total of, over, you know, perhaps two years. But you're drawing on experiences over it seems like many years of your career. Yeah, that's the great thing um, about my career is I've been all over the planet and seen all kinds of bizarre and interesting plants and animals and humans. Um, and so this book was an opportunity to really sort of throw a lasso around the whole ball of wax and, um, and mush it all together and see what it looked like. Now, tell us a little bit about the organization of the book, because it is really like a field guide to humans. It is, and that was my, that was my, my uh, intention, was to make a really tongue-in-cheek guide to the human animal so that the normal person with this book in hand would be equipped to identify the human based on, you know, what its fur looks like, what it's eating, how it mates, how it communicates, um, so that you could really sort of tell the human from, say, the chimpanzee or the rat. <laughs> it's it's not that easy to tell us from rats, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it just seemed like it needed to be really put down in black and white so that we were all really clear on how the animal differs from um, its its fellow animals. Now, you, you, have, you divide the book into a number of sections. Um, the first section we we hit is uh, the physical, just a physical description uh, of humans. And one of the things that really struck me right out the bat was that the importance of nourishment on the physique in that, that during World War II, people got smaller. I mean, he never thought that it happened that fast. It was that important. Yeah, the human, like any other decent animal, um, can adjust to its environment. So in a really poor environment, the animal will not grow as large. And that means it ends up with a body that's easier to fuel. I mean, it's just like the um, gas prices recently caused people to buy smaller cars because it's more efficient to live that way. The human animal and all many animals respond the same way to environmental shortages. They just grow smaller bodies that are more efficient to fuel on a daily basis. Now, you mentioned a word that I think is not often used in association with humans to describe us, and that's fur. <laughs> I know. could cause grave offense. Um, but it really is fur. And um, it's fur that not only explodes on top of your head for reasons that no one's really sure about, but uh, explodes from the armpits and the groin for reasons that are probably related to disseminating your particular odor to potential mates. Um, but you also have a coating of fur from head to toe, the little tiny itty bitty hairs all over your body. And you, honest to God, have more fur than a chimpanzee in terms of individual hairs. Well, that's really fascinating and, again, handy in telling us apart from chimpanzees. <laughs> right. They're hard to count because they're so tiny. Now, um, you go from talking to our fur to you know, how the types of hair, fur, fur we sport, 
to talking about race. And so you get into some pretty controversial stuff right early on in the book. Tell us your thoughts on race. I really loved thinking about this topic. You know, the, the luxury of my job is that I get to just think about things and think about them in different ways um, out of completely new contexts. And I was thinking about race in the context of other animals and thinking, what do we call, say, a Pekingese as opposed to a um, Bernice dog? Do we call those two things different races of dog? Um, now, what about birds? You can get a hawk that's 17 different color arrangements, but the same species. Scientists call these morphs. So you get the red morph and the white morph and the blue spotted morph, but they're all the same species. And humans, for whatever reason, have decided on the term race to distinguish little branches of the population that look a little different, um, but are clearly able to interbreed, which is the definition of members of the same species. Now, one of the things you tie uh, difference, racial differences to is, is uh, folate production. <laughs> Explain what folate production is and why it might result in different racial characteristics. Yeah, one of the easiest ways that humans decide to divide humans up into races is based on skin color. Of course, there's a, a million different ways you can divide humans into races. Um, but uh, one very popular one is skin color. And the best theory as to why humans come in such a variety of colors has not to do with sunlight and skin cancer, which was the old theory. That theory was that if you live near the equator and were exposed to a lot of sun, then you developed a lot of melanin to protect you from ultraviolet damage, which would cause skin cancer and take you out of the gene pool. Um, you know, thanks for playing. But it turns out that skin cancer strikes rather late in life to prevent you from breeding. So it really shouldn't have an impact what skin color does seem to affect is the folate in your skin. And folate is an important um, micronutrient, especially important for breeding, reproduction, healthy offspring, and it's destroyed by ultraviolet radiation. So if you live in a sunny area, not necessarily an equatorial one, you'll want darker skin to protect your folate. If you live in a place with a lot of clouds or not much sun, you will want less pigment in your skin so that the sun can create more folate in your body. And it also, uh, you want a lighter pigment as well for the vitamin D. Exactly, right. You want your vitamin D and your folate. And the only way to do that is to balance the pigment in your skin against your sun exposure. Now, this brings, I think, one of the themes that runs throughout your book up is you're a, a big fan of natural selection, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it has brought us to where we are today. You know, it, it created me. Uh, so in some ways, I'm obligated to be a fan. Um, natural selection is that process by which a animal is either booted out of the gene pool or permitted to remain based on how well adapted its particular genome is to its particular environment. The, the animal, every animal, is constantly mutating, mutating like a fool all the time. Every generation, billions of new mutations. Some of them mean nothing to the animal in terms of how well it functions. Some of them are devastating. Some are just moderately bad for you. Some are fabulous. And Obviously, the fabulous ones are going to allow you to live longer and have more um, healthy offspring. Um, 
One of the things that this book is that I found really interesting about this book was that it, uh, y though you're talking about humans, you also tell us a lot about the animals that you compare us to and things we share. I never conceived of an arthritic whale. I know. I actually hadn't either. I presumed that arthritis was sort of an artifact of modern human civilization and, you know, cement um, and walking around in bad shoes. Uh, but no, um, arthritis is just a, a sad side effect of having a skeleton. Um, so, you know, whales don't have to walk on cement, but they do get arthritis just from their bones being banged together over a large number of years. I, and one of the other things I found fascinating, too, was that humans were designed to be runners, aren't we? We are designed to be pretty much the best distance runner in the world. And again, that was such a surprise. Um, but a human in obviously top condition can run longer than a horse. Um, not necessarily faster, but a horse will tire and drop out before a human will. That's scary. And uh, also, a good sales fodder for for getting good shoes. Because <laughs> one of the, one of the things I love about this book is that your sense of humor, and you talk about the strips of rubber that you wore strapped to your feet, <laughs> which didn't serve you very well. I take it. Yeah, I, I ran track in high school back in the the dark ages. We didn't actually have a track; we had a dirt road, uh, and those. Just remember the abysmal little things that passed for running shoes in the early days of running and just completely destroyed my ankles and knees. One of the things that, that makes us different, too, is we like to modify our bodies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember being in a museum in Costa Rica and seeing these little cylinders that people used to put ink on and then roll around on their bodies to transfer a design onto their bodies. So they're like temporary tattoos. And I was looking at these and going, wow, these adorable primitive people were into like altering the way their bodies looked. That's so primitive and cool. And, you know, I'm looking through the glass and I sort of become aware of my own reflection. And I'm like totally altered from head to toe. I've got, you know, pigment on my lips, on my eyes. I've got pieces of metal stuck through my ears and on my fingers. Um, it just... Uh, altered to beyond recognition. Um, humans love to do this. Once we finish up with the body, next up comes the brain. And this is something I really wasn't aware of. Brains are hot. Smoking. <laughs> they, uh, the brain consumes around a fifth of your entire energy budget. The thing is just burning so hot uh, just to get you through the day that um, yeah, actually is true that uh, if you want to keep your head warm, you need to put a hat on because that thing is like a giant radiator on top of your body. And this is something, too, that, that I've always wondered about, and you talk about this extensively, uh, uh, bigger brains are not necessarily better brains. Again, to go back to the Chihuahua versus the Bernice mountain dog, uh, anybody who knows dogs knows that the Bernice is not necessarily smarter than the chihuahua, although the chihuahua's brain would fit in a thimble. So we know uh, just by common sense that the size of the brain has zero impact on a dog's intelligence. So why should it have an impact on the human's intelligence? It really does look as though it's the arrangement of the parts of the brain and the specialization of different parts of the brain and the wiring that connect those that actually confer intelligence. And this brings us to another theme that I 
detected throughout the book, the differences between men and women. I never conceived that there was much of a difference in the physical structure between men's and women's brains, but you really are particularly different from us, aren't you? <laughs> Absolutely two different species when it comes down to the brain. Um, one scientist has looked at the parts of the brain that humans use to do their thinking, their sort of intelligence work. And males and females use completely different parts. Not only that, but they use different types of cells in those different parts, gray matter versus white matter. Females use an awful lot more white matter, which is the connective stuff that sort of runs signals back and forth between the parts. And males use a lot more gray matter, which is sort of the manufacturing part that creates ideas. So uh, we're, the CP we're using the CPUs, and you guys are using the network. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tempting. That's a tempting conclusion to draw. You can't. Um, you can't prove this stuff without a whole lot of more addition. Without a whole lot of additional work. One other thing I never realized was the impact of uh, the chemicals that on the brain that happen in in infancy when in just gestation, as we using the animal terms, particularly testosterone. Yeah, when you're in, when you were in the uterus, you decided, not your mother, how much testosterone and how much estrogen you would expose your own little fetal self to. Each fetus makes that decision individually. Now, if you expose yourself to a lot of testosterone and not so much estrogen, that's actually going to statistically alter a whole bunch of things about your future. And when I say statistically, the effects are really tiny, but they are there. And some of those effects of having a great deal of testosterone are an elongated fourth finger on your right hand as compared to the index finger on your right hand. And accompanying that difference are the statistic little oddities, like not only do you stand better odds of being a soccer phenomenon and a fabulous athlete, you also have a better chance of going to jail. Wow. <laughs> so it's a mixed blessing. Then. It's a mixed blessing. Testosterone in moderation. Your next uh, look at our uh, natural history is at our perception. Um, it, the things, the organs with which we perceive the world. And of course, the, the human eye is the major organ that uses up the most of our horsepower, our brain. Um, talk, talk about the, the human eye as compared to animal eyes. Well, the human eye is our primary sensory organ as a species. I mean, we rely hugely on our visual sense. And the, the rest of our senses actually aren't so hot. But even our eyes, compared to some animals, are fairly lame, really. Um, they do a nice job of getting us through the day, and that's all that's required of any organ. If they did a bad job, the people who had bad eyes would get weeded out of the population. That is, until the advent of eyeglasses. One of the real benefits of the human eye is that we see with three different pigments, and that means we get the whole rainbow. The dog sees with two, so everything's a little bit shades of gray and green and orange for a dog, for instance. But the human gets the whole rainbow. The human is one of few species, mammal species, that sees in color in three colors. One of the things that really interested me about our hearing is that our ears can't detect fast sounds 
I, this just absolutely fascinated me. And this come, we'll come to this later on when we talk about prairie dogs. Yeah. Um, there's a limit to how fast the human can process any given sensory stimulus. So if a noise hits my ear, there's a limit to how fast the data can travel from my ear to the part of the brain that processes that sound. And for a human, it's fairly limited. We're fairly slow. Um, so when we see a movie that's a series of still images that's sped up so that it all blends together, the reason that works for us is because our visual system works so slowly that we don't see the individual images. But for a fly, for instance, it looks like the most tedious and plodding slideshow on the planet to watch a human movie. That's really interesting. Um, and uh, again, we get some male and female differences in our ability to uh, detect sounds. And, and uh, also, when we get to smells, pheromones. And Andro, what's it? What's it? That's the oh, only... don't even make me say it. Andro... Something like that. Yeah. It's the closest we can come to a human um, pheromone. Uh uh, and uh, as, despite what you see on the internet, there are not pheromones you can rub on your arm uh, that will cause females to leap out of windows to fall on top of you. Um, oh, hell. Yes. <laughs> I already paid for the shipping. I'm sorry. The, the, you know, the, the pig has beautiful pheromones. When a female pig, who is receptive, as we say, detects the scent of a male, she automatically, without thinking about it, goes into mating position. And uh, humans wish that they had something similar. We just do not. Now, you also talk about um, the uh, pain. And this was very interesting. There's three levels of pain detection. Could you talk about the valve-valve, valve-met, met-met pain? Yes, there's a, a gene, the Compt gene, that comes in a variety of flavors in different humans, depending on which copies your parents give you. And if you get two of the met copies, then you're going to be a major sissy. Everything hurts. If you get one of each, you're just kind of normal. And if you get two vowels, you're one of those people who's always saying, you are such a sissy. <laughs> um, you also talk about some other senses, too. And disappointingly, leave out the sixth sense that we always hope that exists, my Precognitive abilities. I, 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 I believe in them. <laughs> it's so interesting that we all want to believe in them. All humans do seem to want to believe that we can sense something beyond the the traditional five. Um, I find it fascinating that we long for this, and we will find ways to justify what really cannot be proven with logic. Once we have understood how humans are built and what they do with their brains and perceptions, you start talking about the range of humans, where they live, and we're a pretty damn ubiquitous species, aren't we? I mean, we really have nailed that subject. The book is divided into categories, um, the same categories that biologists use to describe any animal. So range is one of those categories, like how far north, how, how far south, how far up in the air can a certain species live. Take our closest relatives, the chimpanzees and the orangutans. These animals live in tropical forests. 
they cannot leave those forests. They need trees. When those forests are gone, their day is done. Those species will blink out along with their ecosystem. Those are our closest relatives. Now compare that with the range of the human. We have taken over the entire planet. It's a feat that's beyond amazing. It's just phenomenal. And this expansion onto mountaintops, three miles in the air in Tibet, um, below sea level in Holland, uh, in the Arctic, where there are months without sunlight, and in tropical rainforests where there are 30 meters of rainfall in a year, it's astonishing that the human can do this. And it did this before the advent of metal, and certainly before the advent of polar fleece. And they did it by mutating. I mean, Partly by mutating, but partly we all share an ability to adapt to a wide variety of environmental circumstances. So you or I can go to the Arctic and survive on a temporary basis. Those who have lived there for thousands of years uh, have actually made some bodily modifications that make them much better at it. Humans ranging all over the planet, here, thither and yon, uh, they, when, once they get someplace, uh, they like to, it's theirs. <laughs> and one of the things you, you mentioned, I, and I love this idea, is that people describe themselves as the people of this land. Yes, it's almost, it's almost universal that human groups, when you ask them what they call themselves, whether you find them in the middle of a desert or in the middle of a forest, ask them who they are. And they, their name typically is the people of this land or the people or the ones who own this, a very center of the worldy kind of terms. Um, humans do take over ecosystems. It's not unnatural to do so. In fact, it's completely natural. The beavers would take over if they could. The bunnies, if you gave them shotguns, would shoot us all and eat all the lettuce. It is a, it's a manifest that every animal should alter its environment to suit itself perfectly. And every species strives to do this. The human just does it with exceptional ability. Well, I'm going to make sure that bunnies do not get Second Amendment rights. I, that's some, <laughs> not, not going to happen because I like my lettuce. Uh, um, we like to be up high, don't we? Yeah, that's one of the things that I had noticed before doing this book is that the biggest, fanciest houses are always on hills, at least in older settlements. Um, you know, and in songs, too, you know, what I got a girl who lives on the hill kind of stuff. The humans like the high places, and they're not the only ones. Uh, wolves and the crows in my backyard always pick the highest trees. The wolves go to the top of hills to do their howling. Partly, it's a really good vantage point to scan your environment and make sure that you're prepared for anything that's coming along. Nowadays, we, we like to live near the ocean. I can attest to that, but it wasn't always so, and I, and I never thought about this. Explain to us why that wasn't always so. In our culture, when we first began building shelters, we built near waterways because they carried away waste. But then we did multiply, like the rabbits. 
and our waste multiplied, and, and soon the water couldn't take it all away, and the water became fetid and most fell. And at that point, those who could afford to moved away from the water. And so the wealthy ended up up high on the hills, and the poor remained by the fetid and fell streams. In the last few decades, this has reversed with the Clean Water Act. Rivers have become clean and beautiful and attractive. Uh, oceans have done the same. And the human always likes fresh water. And so when it's available, the human will move close to it again. So we've seen this reverse migration where once again the humans are coming down to be close to the water. And the big houses now are built nearest to the water. Uh, humans like a certain population density. They don't like to be too crowded and they don't like to be too lonely, do we? Yeah, they like a balance, and actually the females and the males are a bit different on this. Solitary males really don't mind too much, but if you isolate a female, she gets depressed. So females seem to want more um, crowding, more socialization, and more social time than males, but both are social animals ultimately and uh, can't be left completely alone. Now, one thing that really surprised me was to find out that uh, how important our territory is to us in that renters die younger. <laughs> yes, that's really interesting. I mean, the human is a very territorial animal, even though our territories are quite strange now because we've sort of specialized in providing different services. So a territory doesn't have to meet all your needs. It can just be a shelter, and then you step outside of your territory to meet a lot of different needs. Whereas my crows in the backyard, they meet all their needs in my backyard. One of the facets of human territoriality does seem to be that if you don't own your territory outright, if you have less control over your territory, as renters do, uh, it doesn't suit their health particularly well. So a study in Scotland of people who rented as opposed to those who owned, even after they corrected for income, the ones who rented their territories died younger. Now, uh, and, and getting back to this book is kind of telling us things about animals that we didn't know. Boy, I never would have suspected that crows came home to visit the family. Yeah, they are so cool. Crows are a lot like us in a lot of ways. They're a very social animal, and an animal with a social lifestyle often has a big brain. It seems that you need a big brain in order to manipulate and manage your fellow human or your fellow crow or your fellow chimpanzee or dolphin. So these social animals have big brains which makes them interesting. And crows are just a fabulous example um, of what humans are. Uh, and one of the things that they do is the young leave the territory and start their own families after a couple of years. And then they are still free to come home and visit. So my crows raise a daughter and a son one year and they go off and grow up, but they may come home every so often just to visit uh, the parents and then return to their own territories. Uh, moving on in our natural history of humans, uh, he, all humans have to eat. It's one of my favorite activities <laughs> and obsessions. Um, and, and there's a great talk in here about the diet because 
trying to figure out what we're supposed to eat. Humans are the only ones who have to figure out what we're supposed to eat, aren't we? It's fairly pathetic, isn't it? That, <laughs> that right. we have to contemplate what we're supposed to eat. You know, um, rabbits, again, don't really put a lot of thought into that. Rabbits and rats and gazelles know perfectly well without contemplating what they're supposed to eat. The human has to fret and agonize over this and have big arguments. Are we supposed to be vegetarians like the, you know, gorilla? Are we supposed to eat only meat like the Neanderthal? Um, and the truth is the human teeth are a dead giveaway for what we are equipped to eat. The human has evolved to be able to eat everything. I like to eat everything. <laughs> I do too. It works for me. It proves to be a problem sometimes. Now, um, one of the things we do that I no other animal does is we cook our food, heat it. Yeah, um, we've been referred to as the cooking ape because it's such a divergent behavior. No other animal processes their food to the extent that the human does. And it has a few effects. Um, one of those is that the, it makes the diet very easy to chew. So the chimpanzee, the poor creature, spends eight hours of its waking life chewing just chewing, just to, just to rip apart the leaves and fruit that it has to consume. So humans who cook have to spend, what, maybe 12 minutes a day chewing, which frees up 7 hours and 48 minutes to do, you know, build streets and um, write books. Um, one thing that's unprecedented in the animal kingdom is what's happening to us right now. Uh, with our ability to consume that, chew that food in seven minutes because we can chew, you know, a double cheeseburger with bacon and, and we don't even have to chew the chocolate shake. Boy, you just suck that smuffy down. <laughs> we, we are becoming fat and we don't know what's going to happen as a result of that, do we? Well, one of the things we're seeing happen is that the human lifespan is actually perhaps getting shorter, which is very interesting. It's kind of contrary to what one would think was the plan. Um, the human is genetically programmed to seek out high-calorie food. Where we evolved, which is in a natural ecosystem, sort of low in animals and low in salt and low in sweet fruit, our bodies evolved so that the brain chemistry rewarded us for finding those things and eating them. We have this huge reward mechanism in the brain that drives us to find more good stuff. So that's always working in every human. On the other hand, traditionally, the human had to balance its time foraging against its exposure to predators. So they would strike a balance called the uh, optimal foraging point, and they would only forage as much as they needed to. Now we have no predators left. There really is no cost to the human of going out and getting more food, and food is extremely abundant compared to the ecosystems in which we evolved. The result is that the brain drives us to consume, 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 and there are no breaks on the process. So we just keep eating. Um, and uh, we also keep breeding. <laughs> You, you, your perceptions of our reproductive behavior are particularly interesting, and I thought it was, I thought it was interesting though that you know you brought yourself into the picture as somebody who doesn't have children, and you started out with the book talking about this. Could you talk about writing about yourself in a little more personal sense than you did? And I think, yeah, it, it was actually 
fairly sobering in the context of this book to look at the reproductive history that ended with me. Um, every single generation of life on earth led to me. I mean, beginning with, you know, little single-celled whatnots. Um, everything had to successfully reproduce in order to lead up to, you know, mammals and then primates and then humans and then Lord only knows how many generations of humans successfully grew up, bred, kept those offspring alive and so on um, to lead to me. And that was really a humbling realization. And then even more humbling was the realization that I ended it. All those generations of success. And it got to me and I said, well, yeah, guess not. Now, you spend quite a bit of uh, time in the reproductive behavior talking about pair bonding. Yeah. <laughs> you know, only 5% of mammals attempt to form a bond when they mate. The normal pattern is like the tiger. The female tiger has her territory. She doesn't want to see any males. She doesn't want to see any females. She lives a solitary life and she's pleased. But every so often that dismal feeling of needing to mate comes over her and she puts out the word and here comes the male and she's not enthusiastic whatsoever. In fact, she's so territorial, it takes days for him hanging around begging and pleading her not to rip his face off before she can tone down her aggression to the point that they can mate. The instant the mating is over, she says, get out, I don't ever wanna see you again. And she doesn't, and that's the normal mammal pattern. The human fights this trend with, you know, mixed success. We try to stay in the same shelter for days, weeks, months, even years, some people attempt it. And it takes a great deal of effort to maintain that pair bond. Um, and fortunately, we are chemically equipped. Every time we touch, uh, humans are flooded with oxytocin, which is this trust-building chemical that that down-regulates your aggression and up-regulates your affection. Now, that's a chemical. <laughs> that sounds very useful. You suggest humans are not really pretty much naturally monogamous. Yeah, it kind of doesn't look that way, does it? Um, culturally, we, we try to be for, for whatever reason. Um, but a major survey of human cultures the world over found that the majority of cultures, not the majority of humans, but of specific cultures, I think that um, multiple matings are absolutely fine. So that is a cultural um, question. And it does seem from both the survey and from human behavior that the human does sort of prefer multiple mates. This is in keeping with so many other species where um, multiple matings produce a diversity of offspring and a diversity of offspring are prepared for a diversity of uh, environmental conditions. Uh, yeah, you suggest that basically we're just natural cheaters, both sides, both men and women, and women tend to profit a little bit more from, from than men, don't they, I guess? Right. Everyone benefits because everyone gets to produce a variety of offspring. The female of the human species does seem to try to hook a decent father, a male who will be affectionate and caring for offspring. 
but the female also, and I'm not saying every female, obviously, the female also, when she's in a cheating mood, does appear to favor really high testosterone, selfish sort of males, because again, she wants diverse offspring. And the males, of course, are cheating themselves because they want also to mix their DNA with a variety of female DNA. And speaking of DNA mixing, now this is something I've read about, but only in fiction. Um, uh, Stalin's monsters. uh, I mean, this is, you define the species and interbreeding. Stalin had some interesting ideas about that, didn't he? Well, I mean, it's one of those perverse questions that just teases humanity. Can humans breed with chimpanzees? I know you want to know this. Um, And, uh, you know, horses can breed with donkeys and create mules, right? That's a hybrid. So, I mean, who has not wondered, can humans meet with chimpanzees? And Stalin decided that if this was possible, they would make the ideal soldiers. And he actually commissioned um, some attempts to do this. It was a very weak attempt. Obviously, they were working with female apes and inseminating them with male sperm. There were no actual sex acts involved. But uh, there were limited attempts, and they were all failures. I don't think we can rule it out at this time, but um, he was not successful. And one thing you talk about in reproduction quite a bit, more more space than I expect to find, uh, devoted to infanticide. Yeah. You know, um, the human is like any other animal in that when it has an offspring that its body cannot support, has a very clear choice. Either both the mother and the infant can die or just the infant can die. It's a pretty clear economic choice for any animal. The mother will usually walk away and then abandon the offspring and try again when conditions are more favorable. This has presumably always been the human way. It was the human way in England even a century ago. It was common practice for a couple who were in poverty or already had too many children to feed to smother or crush an infant and present it to the authorities saying they'd accidentally lain on the infant in their sleep. It was the only way people had to manage their family size and prevent all the offspring from starving. Now, that's a peculiar kind of behavior, and you, then you spend a good deal of time discussing all the other increasingly peculiar types of human behavior. Um, one of the things that, that interests me is, is when you talk about um, the biology of altruism. Altruism is a side effect of this social animal in which one individual cannot survive alone. The human animal needs to be in a group to survive. We just can't meet all our needs alone. And so we have evolved in ways that allow us to put aside our selfish interest, because ultimately every animal is selfish. The human has evolved a system for overriding selfish interest and putting the group's benefit ahead of the individual's temporarily. Now, sadly, in the final analysis, it looks as though even our best works of altruism and goodness are about improving our own reputation within the group so that people will do nice things for us later on. The reputation economy. 
<laughs> it is a reputation economy. I want to look super fantastically nice so that uh, if I need anything, everyone will rush to be the one who supplies my need. Now, you talk about the origins of art, and we look at these fabulous paintings on the wall, and we think they're just, you know, the, our highest cultural achievement. And we look at the spray painting on the, on the uh, sidewalk and think, bunch of hoodlums, but... <laughs> it proves to be that those hoodlums are maybe our artistic forebearers. Yeah, there's a marvelous book about cave art where the um, guy went into caves and analyzed the frequency of certain motifs, if you will, artistic motifs in European cave art in particular. And people have always explained this art as the work of shamans trying to manipulate their environment and appease the gods and so forth. What he discovered is that most of the signs and symbols indicate that this is the fine artwork of, you know, hormonally raging teenage boys. <laughs> now, um, one of the other discoveries you talk about here <clears throat> is um, that it's starting to look like our political parties are the result of uh, DNA. Yeah, this is very interesting stuff. People have often wondered what makes the difference between a conservative and a liberal. Uh, it's got to be biology. And sure enough, it may well be. Um, most human behavior that we find puzzling ultimately has to come down to an adaptive behavior. Um, otherwise, the behavior would sort of fade out of the population. And in this case, it appears that one population of humans has a hard time tolerating ambiguity, and therefore, they make very clean, clear lines. They don't question authority. They just keep things simple. The other part of the population is much more tolerant of ambiguity and indecision and letting things develop and putting things in context. The rationale for why this might evolve is that those who stop to think about why is that snake in the middle of the path and is the one with the black stripes the bad one or is it the one with the green stripes? These people who sort of ponder the context of everything um, have weaknesses when they're exposed to their environment. On the other hand, the people who have just hard and fast rules for anything, snakes are bad, may benefit from that situation. On the other hand, other environmental challenges may really um, be better met with an analytical approach. So both approaches are perfectly useful. Um, in, in your epilogue, you talk about something I think that's very, very interesting, um, the biological nature of evil. One of the things I found re really reassuring about this project was the realization that humans aren't evil and mean to each other as a norm. Usually what we interpret as mean-spirited behavior is just one animal trying to protect its own selfish interests. And again, that's not that different from a beaver who builds a dam and drowns 15 chipmunks. It's just what nature intended. So. While we do strive to overcome our selfish interests, they are nonetheless natural, and I find that comforting somehow. I've been speaking with Hannah Holmes. Her new book is The Well-Dressed Ape, A Natural History of Myself. Thank you for joining me, Hannah. Oh, it's my pleasure.
You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>